So, Dave, who who is the most handsome, smartest, and most talented CEO that you know? Not Larry Ellison. Not Larry Ellison. That's right. That's right. Can can we narrow it even further? Yeah, the, the one, he's like very generous when it comes to raises and restricted uh, stock units. Yes. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I I don't know who you're thinking of. I'm thinking of Jim. Yeah, yeah. We ought to get him on the show one of these days. Oh yeah. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Let me just. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey Jim, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So this is Jim Whitehurst, everyone, CEO of uh, CEO of Red Hat. Yeah, good to be. Yeah, I was just sitting here going through the budgets, trying to cut out a few bonuses. So, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Yes. yes. So, uh, so Jim, so we know you fairly well. I mean, in as much as uh, any employee can know the uh, the CEO of a company the size of Red Hat. But why don't you tell folks uh, a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Well, this is uh, my, I guess, my third job in my life. I was. Uh, Graduated from college and uh, a degree in computer science. I always have to say when people ask me about Linux, that, that was before Linux existed. I'm hate to uh, or embarrassed to admit. I uh, went to work for a consulting firm called the Boston Consulting Group, and they sent me back to business school, and I stayed there for a long time. I joined Delta literally at noon on 9-11, uh, 2001 as treasurer. So, you know, I like challenges. And after uh, a while of that, I ended up leaving as chief operating officer and decided it was time to work somewhere that was uh, growing and a lot more fun. And I've been at Red Hat now seven and a half years. Wow. I can't blame anything on Matthew anymore. It's all all mine. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, I, Gunnar, you've been at Red Hat for nine years yeah, yeah, nine yeah, and a half. And, yeah, yeah, and it, I've been here for eight, and you know, I remember you know crossing that billion dollar threshold, and uh, you know, we're we're uh, looking to uh, you know get be on track to cross uh, five billion down the road and everything. So, um, why write a book? Don't you have enough going on, Jim? I'm, I'm sure you're pretty busy. Yeah, you know, I, I am. I am kind of busy. You know, a couple things happen, you know, here and there, you know, <laughs> around, and, you know, the board and all that mess. Now, really, you know, I, I wrote it for uh, really two reasons. I guess let me talk about the, the reason, you know, my passion got me to write it. And then let me talk about the reason why my head said it would be a good thing for Red Hat to do. You know, I, I will say I, I feel like the frog that jumped into the boiling water. You know the analogy, you put a frog mm-hmm. in water and you heat it up and it mm-hmm. ultimately um, you know, dies. But if you throw a frog into boiling water, it knows it's a big change and hops right out. You know, I, I do think we're going through a move in our economy from an economy where you know, assets were the primary means of production and you know, people working on assembly lines were you know, a primary input to a world around information and where – you know, robotics and information technology are basically, you know, automating the rote jobs out there. And so the jobs that are remaining are going to need to be educated people who can apply creativity and initiative and business is moving rapidly. And, you know, if you think about management as it's been for the last, you know, hundred years, it was developed really for the assembly line, for mass manufacturing, for uneducated people doing rote tasks 
in a static environment where there was no you know, information of any material amount, right? If you're lucky, you had a telegraph. Mm-hmm. Today's environment, you have skilled people needing to apply creativity and initiative in fast-moving environments with unlimited or almost, you know, certainly high-speed, instantaneous broadband communication. So it should be no, any engineer could tell you under those circumstances, it's likely the solution you engineer is different. Yet management hadn't changed in 100 years. And so I had the gift of coming into Red Hat after running an airline and seeing this vastly different environment that I originally thought was chaos and then I ultimately found was actually a really effective way to run a, a company. And so I really feel like I got a gift of seeing that. I didn't read about it. I actually saw it up front. I got thrown into the boiling water. And, you know, like anyone else at Red Hat is part of our culture. When we have something valuable, we think we need to share it. So my heart really wanted me to share the book. And then my head said, well, should I really invest time to do it? But, you know, frankly, that you know, being a B2B company, not a lot of people know who Red Hat is. And even among our core customers, most senior IT people only have a very, very vague knowledge of us. Our unaided awareness is quite low. And even our uh, our aided awareness among CIOs is mediocre. And so I thought, well, not only do I have something I'm passionate about for leaders, but I think it also helps position Red Hat with uh, with business leaders as a kind of a next generation, a company you want to have a relationship with. So uh, I think, and, and since Harvard, frankly, paid us to write it, you know, it's a <laughs> negative cost way uh, to get our brand name out there and talk about something I think is really important. Yeah, that that makes that makes total sense. And, and so, what what are some of the so you characterize you know title as open organization, and you you spend the book kind of describes a lot of the characteristics of the open organization, which is like a generalization of some of the things you saw at Red Hat. So, what are some of the uh, what are some of those attributes or characteristics of an open organization? Yeah, well, let me start off. Uh, you know, just the the couple of major kind of ahas to to me that I think that as soon as leaders can get over these, then the actual components will make a lot of sense. You know, traditional management was built assuming that you could always get workers, right? In a world where people were coming off the farm into the factory, you know, you had a glut of workers. And so when you thought about the people in your organization, you know, you, you didn't actually think about needing to attract the best and the brightest. You just paid X and people showed up. And so they were cogs in the wheel. Well, in today's world, it actually becomes much more about needing to attract the best and the brightest and then get them to perform well. And so first off, traditional management, and this, we, I start the book talking about this, starts off with, well, what's the company trying to accomplish? And now then it talks about, well, how are we going to do that, you know, which is around strategy or culture, et cetera. And then finally, it's like, well, why are people going to do it? And that was the simple part. It was the afterthought because it was, well, for a paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about an organization as being participative, in other words, if you go in just deeply in your mind and say, or really almost in your heart and say, people need to be part of this because they want to be part of it. They have a choice. They want to participate. And this comes out of open source, right? You know, open source, people weren't getting paid. Mm-hmm. You had to attract them to participate because they wanted to. So you really just start with why. You invert that pyramid. You start with why. Why should people be involved in this? Um, you know, why do they want to expend time and energy here versus somewhere else? There's also a piece of why, and I'll come into the little details uh, in a minute, 
But there's also a piece of why around, okay, I understand I'm part of this movement, but why are we doing this and not that? And what's the context around that? You then move into the how, right? The interactions between people are really, you get passionate, participative people together. You know, how do they interact in a way that gets the best solution? And then the what, frankly, kind of comes last, right? So now, okay, you have a passionate group of, of motivated people around a mission and you have them put together in a way that they can come up with great ideas and execute. And then the what, how you ultimately then do strategy to refine that is, is really the last thing you do. So the book structure that way, it talks about why, and it breaks it into two components. It talks about the importance of purpose and passion. And then it talks about the importance of creating context around, you know, kind of why the company's doing specifically what it's doing. You got to tie people's um, uh, everyday work to the strategy of the company because if you're going to ask people to uh, to take initiative, you got to make sure that they're taking initiative in the right way. And so with chapters on each of those, you know, one's about purpose and passion and the next is about creating uh, context and enabling people by ensuring they know deeply the strategy of the organization. I'll keep going for a minute here. The next layer around what is how do they interact? And that talks about meritocracy and a chapter we call Let the Sparks Fly, uh, which is about you need people to interact in, in um, you know, very frank ways. And we learned that from open source as well uh, to um, ensure that you get the best answer, right? Just praising everything, brainstorming has been shown not to be as effective as having frank and open debates. And then ultimately, as a leader, you catalyze direction. It's inclusive decision-making and catalyzing a direction. So that's kind of the whole overall framework of the book. And again, each of those has a parallel coming out of the open source movement that we've adopted over time. Yeah. So, Jim, you know, you mentioned meritocracy. And I think a lot of times people use – they equate that with democracy, and that's really not the case. And, and you went into that in the book, and I, I thought that was uh, really well put. And, and to me, it, you know, I was using it – I wouldn't say interchangeably, but um, but th it is different, right? Yeah, I think that's a good point. There are two, I think, really ahas I had around uh, meritocracy. The first one, you're exactly right. There is a general sense, I think, among people in traditional organizations that things are bimodal. It's either an autocracy or it's a democracy. There's nothing in the middle. So if all of a sudden you're saying the boss isn't making the decisions, then somehow everybody's making the decisions. And, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth at Red Hat. If you think about open source communities, uh, people earn their reputation over time. You, know, you start off trying to get involved and people don't know who you are. And over time, you make good contributions or suggestions. And ultimately, you know, you uh, get the, the ability to commit code, right? You become a committer and ultimately can become a project leader. And that's based on contribution over time. Now, the second thing people think about meritocracy uh, is, well, meritocracy means then the best ideas win. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, how do you actually effect that in practice, right, in that who decides who the best idea is? And isn't that person really just the autocrat? And realistically, even at Red Hat, we don't have a way to say this is objectively the best idea. But what we do is – you know, people have earned their reputations over time. So people who've contributed a lot for a long period of time, who've been thought leaders or selflessly been involved in things, who've shown that their ideas are actually quite good, 
um, you know, they kind of emerged as the thought leaders and their ideas win over time. So when we say meritocracy, it's really the ideas coming from, you know, the, the people over time who have proven to be, have the best ideas or the ideas that ultimately kind of win. And you know, yeah, I talk a little bit book for, for people new coming in, it can be a little intimidating because until you've built a reputation, you know, you, you may think you have the best idea and it may not be listened to as much. And that's something we need to continue to work on. Um, and I do think Red Hat's pretty open around that. But it really does take the whole concept of code committer and how you work through that life cycle and try to apply it to a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 that's good. I actually wanted to ask you about that specifically because the there's this growing sense in the industry that like meritocracy is actually just code for rewarding people who already have privileges. Um, because you know, if I've got the reputation, reputation, as you mentioned, or if I've already got a set of privileges that I'm coming into the, coming into the work with, it's, uh, it's easier for me to distinguish myself with, you know, with my fantastic ideas. Um, so, uh, to put it another way, like some people start the hundred meter dash at 50 meters, right? Um, so how in a, a meritocratic system, how do you make sure that you're hearing all of the voices and that you're not privileging some voices over others and crowding out some potentially great ideas? Yeah, you know, that 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 is a hard one. I mean, to be frank, yeah, because once someone's built a reputation, it is more likely they will be listened to more than others, right? Now, okay. if you still have a very transparent process and you've built a culture that tries to celebrate the best ideas winning, there are a number of people who have strong reputations. And as long as the majority of those people continue to um, believe in the power of great ideas can come from anywhere, then they're likely to self-moderate, right? So you may have somebody says, this is my idea, but you can often have three or four other people who have really good reputations that say, hey, but here are five other ideas that are coming in. So being very transparent, a way for everyone to contribute their ideas and continuing to celebrate ideas coming from anywhere, I think are really, really important. So you don't get into that um, kind of situation where it's a few people kind of get to the elite status and are ultimately making decisions. That's, it's one you really, really have to watch and have to be really transparent um, and how decisions get made. And as senior leaders in the company, celebrating kind of new people with new ideas uh, to make sure kind of culturally it's expected that people give ideas and people are rewarded for that. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, you, and in the book, oh, sorry. It's called the book, you know, Tales from the Bleeding Edge, because to me it's a battle every day. And it's one of the things that we don't have all the answers. This is what we do. And there are a whole bunch of, of uh, areas we continue to struggle and work on every day. And frankly, uh, Gunnar, you really hit on one. That's an important one that we continue to work on. That's great. <clears throat> oh, that's great. And, and so as you're identifying these, uh, as you're identifying these, these kind of leaders or the uh, – yeah, these like consensus leaders that kind of bubble up in the meritocracy. You you talk a little bit about the difference between thermostats and thermometers, um, which I think is a legacy from your BCG days, right? Yeah, I love that um, uh, analogy because almost anyone can understand it. And I did bring the analogy with me from BCG. And so back uh, doing change management work uh, at BCG, we used to always talk about you need to get the uh, thermostats on side. And the logic is there are two types of people in the world. There are thermometers and thermostats. 
Um, the thermometers reflect the temperature and the thermostats set the temperature, right? It's the same thing as saying there are people who like to lead and want to lead and there are people who don't and they're more likely to follow. And the key is in any organization is finding uh, the thermostats, the people who set the temperature, who are the thought leaders. And the reason we specifically use those terms is we didn't want to use words like thought leader because then you start looking organizationally. And I think we all know that many of the great thought leaders in a company are individual contributors. They've chosen that they don't want to be people managers, but they're still thought leaders. And so every company has them and everybody knows that they have them. It's just so many companies don't bother to um, kind of acknowledge that. And that's something we do really well at Red Hat. We have some phenomenal thought leaders who are individual contributors, and that's great. And so they are thermostats. And you got to leverage the thermostats. They exist and they're so powerful in an organization um, to get things done, to make change happen, to really drive the culture of the company forward. So how do I know if I'm a thermostat or a thermometer? Well, I, the simple way is when you post on MemoList, uh, which is one of our internal lists, you know, how many people, you know, actually respond <laughs> to more are debates that you have. Are you, you know, generally kind of sought out for an opinion? You know, we mentioned a couple people in the book and I don't you know, hate to pick on individuals, but people like Thomas Cameron or Maureen Duffy are people that they're on memo list a lot. They not just with strong opinions on specific topics, but also to help and to ask good questions. And you just kind of, those people emerge and you just kind of know over time you know, who they are uh, in the organization. And, you know, it's, I'll often, uh, the analogy I talk about with traditional management structure is it's like economics 101. You know, when you take an economics class, uh, you, basically are told there's an upward sloping supply curve and a downward sloping demand curve. And when markets are in equilibrium, price and quantities where those cross and everybody's rational. And then the last lecture of the, of the class, the professor says, yeah, we know all that's kind of BS. You know, people aren't <laughs> rational and markets aren't in equilibrium. But we had to make all those simplifying assumptions to make the math work. Right. Kind of the same thing happens in management, right? You know, we have this management theory and organizational lines and structures but we know people are emotional beings, and we know that some people are naturally more thought leaders than others. Yet in traditional management, we just assume that away and say, well, let's assume people are rational and they follow orders and are equally motivated. And we know none of that's the case. And so it's just a matter of looking past that, looking at people in the organization and seeing who people follow. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the definition of a leader, somebody people follow. Yeah, so... To change uh, uh, topics a little bit, Jim, so one, one of the things that we talk about at Red Hat as well as with the open source community is the whole credo of uh, fail faster to succeed sooner. Um, and when I was reading the book, one of the things that surprised me was uh, your advice about slower decisions leading to faster results. So how, how can you reconcile the two? Yeah, well, there um, uh, the – those are two different kind of sides of a coin. So the first one is, you know, because we give people a lot of latitude uh, or we really work hard to give people latitude to make decisions um, in their own area, we want to make sure that no one can, you know, lose $100 million for us. So we talk a lot about failing fast and, you know, you need to learn quickly and move on. And so we try to give people enough individual 
or organizations, and we want our managers to give our own people within organizations latitude to try new things, you know, but not so long that they can ultimately get, you know, either their career or the company, you know, in trouble uh, for, you know, losing too much dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's what we mean by failing fast, uh, which is very, very similar to release early, release often in software, right? Let's make small iterative advances. Um, and that's the majority of, of what we do in a company. Like, you know, we decided to commercialize ultimately the data grid. It started off a couple of people in Red Hat getting involved in Infinispan, and it kind of grew out from there over time until obviously that was going to work. We have people getting involved in other projects that don't get that kind of traction, and ultimately they need to step back and recognize that project's not going to work. Um, the second is more when we look top down at making large decisions, um, we need to recognize that we need to involve a lot of people in, in those decisions. And the analogy I talked about in there is about change management and consultants is most large organizations make big decisions quickly. You know, you have a strategic planning group or the CEO decides, and we actually talk about being decisive as a positive trait in a leader. And so decisions happen really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you look study after study, the majority of large change or large uh, kind of implementation initiatives fail. And they fail because the organization's never really brought along. And so you get two things. One, you have senior leaders complaining that their organization's unwilling to make large changes. And secondly, um, you uh, get massive uh, expenses on, you know, change management consultants. And frankly, when I was at BCG, we did these massive change management efforts and they were very profitable. <laughs> and what I've found since I've been at Red Hat is the core missing thing there is that you need to handle change management in the decision making process. It's so much easier to get people engaged when you're actually making the decision than trying to sell them on a decision that gets made after the fact. And there are two parts of that. Hopefully the decision's better because you've involved people in it. And um, just obviously, you know, people who are closer to a situation might help tweak a decision to make it better. But secondly, because people have been engaged in it, even if they disagree with it, they're more likely to help it succeed because they were actually asked their opinion, you know. Anyone who has a spouse or significant other knows you're more likely to get a good response out of a joint decision if you've involved the other party in it than if you make it mandated and then say, please follow. And again, that's we all know in relationships we're in that emotion plays a role. We need to recognize emotion plays a role at work as well. And you're more likely to get a better result when you involve people. Yeah. Now, yeah. Dave, to specifically on that one last comment, how those two pieces come together is hopefully if you've done a good job of release early, release often, right, you know, um, fail fast, you don't have to do major big decisions. You hope the organization continues to move forward, making myriad small decisions that bubble up from the bottom. And so large change efforts are rarely needed. Um, right. I mean, if we have to make major, major changes, that means somehow our fail fast um, didn't work. And so hopefully those major changes are few and far between. But I do think they go better when people are involved in decision making. Yeah. Well, speaking of the decision making, there was an Inc. Magazine article that I recently saw that reminded me of the book um, where um, Jack Dorsey, you know, CEO of Square and I believe interim CEO of Twitter now, uh, he says, if you're making decisions, you're not leading. And then on the other end of the spectrum, 
the article talked about uh, Marissa Meyer, who's the CEO of Yahoo, and she has 70 meetings a week and 4,000 emails a day. So it's really it's, it's two different styles where you know from a decision making uh, process. But you know, when do you think is one approach is more appropriate than the other when it comes to CEO decision making? Well, look, I'm obviously more uh, in the former camp. I really do truly believe that if I have to get involved in the decision, then somehow somewhere I have failed in building the organization that has arrived at the right decision, right? Because why what should I be smarter than the rest of that organization? So, you know, I, I think a lot of executives like being the ones who make the ultimate decision. And, hey, there are times when we can't get to an agreement, and that's not always – Horrible. But in general, if you built the right organization, both structure, people, and the way people interact, they should be able to come up with decisions, you know, as an organization that shouldn't require so much out of the leader, mm-hmm. right? And so I view much more of my role is building an organization capable of making the right decisions rather than needing to actually make those decisions myself. Um, now, look, uh, uh, to be clear, there are different organizations in different kind of areas um, of maturity doing different things. And so, you know, frankly, when I was running the airline and we were talking about on-time performance, you know, driving that kind of at a 9 o'clock meeting every morning where we looked at first flight performance across, you know, all, all of the uh, airports. So that kind of linear performance driving actually can can make a little more sense where you're not trying to get initiative and creativity. But if you're going to foster, you know, real initiative, creativity, innovation, then that top-down style just will not work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so that leads actually to the the next question I wanted to ask you, um, which uh, the topic of millennials, right? Um, Which I don't know about you, but I'm already exhausted reading about millennials. Um, and, uh, they've gotten a lot of, a lot of coverage, especially in the business press, because apparently millennials are aliens from another planet and need a completely different, uh, engagement style. Right. So like, I, I guess, especially when you're thinking about exactly how kind of top down you want to be, um, the, the consensus is that, you know, millennials expect a kind of a bottom up experience very much actually along the lines of what you described in, in the open organization. Um, is, is that your experience? Like that millennials need like a different set of like, uh, caring and care and feeding? Yeah, no, I, th- I think so. And I, look, I think it just comes to a level of expectation around, um, you know, uh, engagement, right? I mean, millennials have grown up in a much more kind of uh, open environment, uh, especially in the last decade with social networking, a- a- ability to uh, talk and to be involved, to see organic organizations kind of grow up, you know, um, so I think there's just a greater expectation that better answers come from involving people. And so there's this natural, I think, sense of, well, of course I should voice my opinion. And, you know, I, and of course, you know, that should uh, be listened to, maybe not heeded, but at least listened to and considered, right? And I think that this is where you kind of get this generational gap where I think you have a generation of leaders for, you know, like me and others from uh, prior uh, uh, generations who look and say, wow, these people want control. They all want to be CEO so quickly. You know, what are these people doing? They expect too much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's where the disconnect is. I think millennials expect to uh, have a voice 
and to be able to express their opinions, I don't think they necessarily expect that all of their opinions will be heeded, where I think that uh, an older generation is looking, saying, well, that somehow implies that they think that they should be running the place. And so you get kind of this disconnect between you know, a millennial generation that believes let a lot of ideas fly and the best ones will emerge versus a prior generation of saying, well, you know, you should shut up and, you know, kind of do what you're told until you, you know, have your 10 year pen. You know, those are taking the extremes. But I do think there's a disconnect when I hear CEOs saying millennials all want to run a division within two years. I don't think they necessarily do, but they do at least want to be able to voice their opinion and believe it's going to be heard. And that's truly right out of the open source movement, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're rounding the bend here. We we have uh, one closing question each for you. Um, so so here here goes mine. So heaven forbid no for you. What's that? No bonus for you. Was that the question? <laughs> oh dang! <laughs> it, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse after this. Um, okay. So Jim, heaven forbid you left Red Hat. And you became the CEO of Delta. What would you do uh, given the lessons that you learned at Red Hat? Look, uh, well, the one of the first things uh, I would do is focus on engagement. And you know, and I talk a lot in the book. It doesn't mean morale. It truly means kind of engagement, making sure people understand the strategy of the organization and what they can do to make it successful. I do tell a story in the book, and this did come from Delta where just soon after the bankruptcy, I ended up in front of a group of mechanics and I started walking through the whole bankruptcy restructuring plan because I'd grooved that speech because I'd given it to bankers for weeks. And, you know, part of it was talking about running an on-time airline and the importance of doing that. And I basically told them that the best thing that they could do or the single most important thing they could do to help us in the bankruptcy is run an on-time airline. And within two months of our bankruptcy filing, we went from last of the major carriers to first of the major carriers in on-time performance and held it for a couple of years. And I swear we didn't do anything. We certainly didn't invest in more staff or equipment or re-engineering. We just told people it was important. And so going back to Delta, I would certainly open uh, more vehicles for internal communication. Uh, something like memo list, which we lose internally, might be hard at 80,000 people, but I would certainly have you know, a set of ways for dialogue to happen, and I would make sure that everybody in the organization had a clear view of the strategy and the role they play in it. Um, because in an airline, you know, it's kind of a factory without a roof. And so weather happens, and uh, so people have to take initiative and I think if they understand the what's and why's of the strategy and the context overall, they'll make better decisions. I think that could work at Delta. It could work at GE. It can work at obviously works at Red Hat. I don't think that's uh, the necessarily the nature of the company. I guess if you're running a old line, you know, assembly line, it's less valuable. But I think in almost any business now, so many of these lessons can apply and can make organizations run so much better. So, uh, so, uh, so uh, let's take, if we take a if we take a, a kind of a different lens on this, and this actually comes from uh, your friend and ours, uh, Paul Smith, uh, the uh, uh, VP of, uh, of uh, public sector um, at my Dave's current boss, my old boss. Um, he back in episode ninety two, he suggested we ask this. Um, so, how can you apply the open organization principles to your family life? 
<laughs> well, you know, I guess the first thing, you know, I will get to the answer. I guess contextually, what I'm actually arguing is so much of what I am proposing that we do in the open organization, people already do in their family life, right? We recognize that when, when we are with our family, that emotions matter and it, people aren't fully rational, <laughs> right? right, so right. I, I certainly, at least I can tell you with my spouse uh, and kids, inclusive decision-making um, is the first thing I would begin. And, you know, leader as catalyst, um, you know, that, uh, you know, recognizing the, the importance of engagement, I think, can work just as well uh, in family life um, as it can in business. So recognizing the need to be open and, and make inclusive decisions and involve are important. I would say the biggest change people could make from what they do now is the whole chapter around enablement and the importance of context and making sure people are tied to the objective. I do think a lot of families don't necessarily sit down and talk about, okay, this year, you know, what do we want to accomplish in terms of like, where might we want to go on vacation? And what does that imply? And what are we willing to give up to make that happen? You know, what are we working towards that way? Or what do we want to, you know, what charities are important to all of us? I know a lot of individuals will say, I'm going to give this amount to my church or this amount to environmental organization. How many people sit down with the family and actually go through that, hear what their kids have to say and actually have a good, robust debate about it? Because, you know, I do think we all sit around and worry about our kids and you know, growing up in, you know, the age of social media and, you know, we all have, you know, relative abundance versus how most of us grew up and certainly our grandparents and recognizing that creating context around that and what we're trying to achieve, I, I really do think can make most of our families, I don't want to say functional, let me say less dysfunctional than, you know, most of us really are. <laughs> That's great. And it, you, I'm glad you touched on that because that's one of the things I think I enjoyed the most about the book is uh, that it's vision for how to run an effective organization in an age not constrained by uh, kind of raw materials um, and with, you know, highly educated workforces. It's a much more humane vision of, of, of how to run an organization like that, um, which is something that I'm certainly experiencing at Red Hat and, and I really enjoyed you uh, describing in the book. Um, Jim, we're we're at the end of we're at the end of the questions, so we're out of runway. Um, I want to thank you very much for taking the time out and uh, answering all our questions. This has been uh, this has been fantastic. Yeah, so it's been great to be here. I would like just one last thing to say, and I always want to push this, uh, say this, because I think it's important is, you know, this book is not about what I've done. It's about what I've learned. You know, I really do think, you know, Red Hat's given me a gift of seeing a whole new way to run an organization. And so I'm just, I, I, I'm the one telling the story, but it's really been something that you guys and 7,500 other people have been involved in creating. It's it's an amazing thing, and the good news is I still think we're in the early days of creating it. So it's uh, it's great to do things like this, and for all of us to think about it and continuing to iterate on it because we're still at the beginning of a journey. I see that, Dave. That's some A plus CEOing right there. That was that's, a, that's that was great. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Oh. I was saying that because I figured, you know, that might be motivational. So when you don't get a bonus. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> All right. So, Jim, uh, it was great speaking with you. And thanks for joining us on the show. Where, where should we send everybody uh, to get to the show notes and to learn more about the book? Oh, go to dgshow.org um, and it'll all be there. Great. Please right. go. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, well, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. That was fun. Appreciate it, guys. Bye.